Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Quentin Tarantino's first masterwork, Pulp Fiction, from 1994, is a sight to behold and listen to. Its cast, amplified by nearly wall-to-wall pop songs like Jungle Boogie by Cool and the Gang and Son of a Preacher Man by Dusty Springfield, is all but guaranteed to perk up the first-time viewer. I am not that newbie. I saw Pulp Fiction opening weekend at a midnight show in October 1994, and I've seen it many times since, on screens big and small, alone and in groups, in my early adulthood and now in firm middle age. The shockwave it sent through the world of movies is real, and still being felt with all the permission it offered screenwriters, particularly in the shift away from linear stories and an obvious moral quarrel that develops from the decisions of a clear protagonist. Perhaps the greatest influence of Pulp Fiction is its knowing, self-conscious connection with pre-existing art and entertainment that become the basis, through its example, for such works as Train Spotting and Boogie Nights. In fact, there can be no Breaking Bad without Pulp Fiction, but there is no Pulp Fiction without Kiss Me Deadly or Deliverance, among the many movies, TV shows, songs, and art references that Tarantino uses and acknowledges no longer shy about attempting absolute originality. For good or bad, Pulp Fiction also resurrected the mid-career slumps of John Travolta and Bruce Willis, accelerated the rise of Samuel L. Jackson, and confirmed the value of Ving Rhames, Tim Roth, and Uma Thurman when used in the right vehicle to showcase their unusual talents. The shabby chic of a Los Angeles-based criminal underworld is equally a gem of realist design meeting cinematic high concept. In the movie, we visit a nostalgic 50s diner and drive on boulevards filled with cars but no people on the way to low-rise stucco apartments. It's a love letter to a city made immortal by the entertainment industry, itself organized around the tropes of pulp fiction that turned real Los Angeles into real Los Angeles, and it's this fusion of false and true that makes the movie so important. Pulp fiction is also a repulsive mess that alternately bores and surprises, and it's aged as a symptom of the time in which it was written and produced, the early 1990s. Told out of chronological order through seven distinct chapters, the clearest story synopsis is, the son of a Vietnam War POW becomes a boxer who cheats a gangster and then reconciles his double dealing with the gangster to live happily ever after. The boxer is Butch Coolidge, Willis, and the gangster is Marcellus Wallace, Rames. But the balance of the movie is consumed with side stories that trail Butch's double cross and Wallace's efforts to murder him. Fans of the movie can recite its many one-liners. They call it a royale with cheese, whole tracts of well-performed monologues, Ezekiel 2517, the Tarantino stamp of great conversation, any two-shot with Travolta and Jackson, and the unnerving constancy of pop cultural references, Correctamundo. The movie's script is a genuine pleasure to read, and its cast works wonders through turns of phrase. I do believe, Marcellus Wallace, my husband, your boss, told you to take me out and do whatever I wanted. The adoption of accents, again, Travolta, and the overall impression that people behave according to core memories as much as they ever worry about a difficult boss or a demanding romantic partner, the gold watch. Here's the undigestible nut at the heart of the movie. Tarantino's white people are really comfortable with racist epithets, and his black people end up receiving the brunt of his most outrageous punishments while also being his best characters. In the latter half of Pulp Fiction, 
Tarantino appears on screen as Jimmy, a confederate of Jules Winfield, Jackson, the reliable black hitman of Marcellus Wallace and a partner to white hitman Vincent Vega, Travolta. When Jules and Vincent need to cover up the accidental killing of a black man and dispose of his body, they turn to Jimmy who accepts them with great anxiety because his black wife, Bonnie, Vanessa Valentino, seen only from behind in a fantasy sequence, will freak out if she sees this kind of gangster activity when she returns home from her graveyard shift as a nurse. Importantly, Bonnie may be the niece of Marcellus Wallace, making Jimmy part of the criminal family that Wallace controls. Regardless, Jimmy feels very comfortable offering coffee to Jules and Vincent before speaking directly to Jules, an armed killer with a jerry curl in the following blunt, racist way. Did you notice a sign in the front of my house that said dead nigger storage? No, I didn't. You know why you didn't see that sign? Because it ain't there, because storing dead niggers ain't my fucking business, that's why. For many years, our society has struggled with how to judge epithets among in-group speakers while policing that access among out-group racists. Meaning, white folks who once ruled the culture and all its rhetorical wordplay have yielded, somewhat, to black folks who have modified our social experience that dots the music, TV, and movies of the last generation. Political correctness coincides with this turn, changing behavioral signals to make everyone more aware of how common remarks and actions can hurt. Then, a prominent white artist like Quentin Tarantino says, Niggers. in a blockbuster movie that earns many awards, including the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay, without receiving correction from on-screen characters and with only limited criticism. As someone who regurgitates favorite lines from movies, TV shows, and pop songs, and as someone aware of these influences on my personal behavior, I don't think Tarantino's Jimmy is allowed to say all the things he says. It's like Tarantino believes it is okay for white people to quote Jimmy in reverence for his extraordinarily celebrated movie. It's in the National Film Registry. The logical basis is that it's not racist to quote something so well known and highly regarded, and besides, a person can't exhibit bigotry against a group if they simultaneously express in-group connection, as Tarantino often does along the lines of, I love black people, or I have lots of black friends. Plus, Tarantino is a terrible screen performer. He can't get through Jimmy's dialogue in a believable way, so the defense he's offered, the argument that his dialogue is actually very close to the way people talk when they're not on blast, rings false. Why do I say this? I'm white, and I do not use racial insults without reservation, this essay included. Through years of living in a raced society, I've become wary of how I can behave in a racist fashion if I use words indiscriminately, and this reticence to cause offense stands in opposition to many of the characters in Pulp Fiction. Then, there is the pawn shop sequence, when Marcellus and Butch are overtaken by a trio of rednecks, Maynard, Dwayne Whitaker, Zed, Peter Green, and the Gimp, Stephen Hibbert. Marcellus and Butch are knocked out, ball-gagged and restrained, and then selected at random for punishment in the back room of the basement. In the event, Butch is lucky and escapes by killing the Gimp, but turns back after hearing Maynard and Zed rape Marcellus, whereupon Butch kills Maynard with a katana and stands over the disabled Zed, for whom Marcellus trades Butch's life. I'ma call a couple of hard pipe-hitting niggas to go to work on the homes here with a pair of pliers and a blowtorch. You hear me talking, hillbilly boy? 
The complete horror of Pulp Fiction is, in this moment, revealed. Two-dimensional, redneck ciphers violate black manhood because it is the basic design of a redneck cipher to do so. Yet the same black patriarch they use as a sexual trophy, and played by one very big, bald, profane, and menacing Ving Rhames, is equal to the task of avenging his humiliation with prolonged and justifiable homicide. We did just see him trust and pantless. Is this moment emotionally rich? Yes, it is. But it's also disgusting. Black people and black culture generally are used in this sequence to receive pain and violence, but these same black people and the black culture they represent are also signals of influence. Everyone works for Marcellus in one way or another, and everyone is scared of him. Even so, Jules, as Marcellus's lieutenant, is assailed by Jimmy's insults. Dead nigger storage! While Marcellus is sexually violated in much the same way that black culture is strip-mined to lend Butch his cool, as in this line of dialogue earlier spoken by Marcellus, that Butch repeats while beating up Marcellus, the white guy overpowering the black guy before they are both captured in the pawn shop. You're that sting, big boy, huh? That's pride fucking with you, see? You that shit. Our allegiance among these characters shifts on the basis of our pre-existing racial identity, our knowledge of pop culture and storytelling conventions, and our willingness to tolerate the profane and the ugly. We can't like Butch without acknowledging that he's a white criminal without loyalty or a code, and we can't like Marcellus because he's the black kingpin who wants Butch dead. But we can agree that seeing Zed die is appropriate because we just watched Zed, the most archly white character imaginable, rape Marcellus while we listen to the saxophone solo from Comanche by the Revels. Pleasure in Pulp Fiction is constantly twisted around race, racism, nerve, and gore. This middle-aged viewer maintains a continuous and high regard for Tarantino's ambition in this paradigm-shifting movie, although I now view its many celebrated successes as soulless and too blunt for comfort. Thank you for listening to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. My name is Garrett Chaffin-Kirai. Boop-boobity-doo!